1: I'm Carla Appy and this is New Books in History. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just spoke with Nick Popper about his new book, Walter Raleigh's History of the World and the Historical Culture of the Late Renaissance. And this was published with the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now in this book, Nick manages to do two things at the same time that are really, really difficult to do individually, let alone together and as part of a coherent whole. He's on the one hand giving us a really fine-grained, but excitingly fine-grained and detailed analysis of the production of a specific book by a specific person at a specific time. And so he takes us into not just the contents of this really interesting history of the world written by Raleigh, but also the methods and the the reading practices and the note-taking practices that Raleigh used while he was in the Tower of London, so while he was imprisoned along with his library to produce this book. At the same time, Nick is taking us into the larger intellectual, social, political, scholarly transformations within which Raleigh is embedded, and that in some ways Raleigh helps precipitate as a way of understanding larger transformations within and across early modern Europe. And so the book does these two things at the same time. Over the course of the narrative, Nick also introduces us to these some really fascinating case studies that come out of um, both Raleigh's book, but also the kind of scholarship that Raleigh's engaging with in writing his book. So where was the Garden of Eden? Um, where did uh, Noah's Ark finally land? And, and where was its final resting place? These really interesting ways that, um, among other things, the history of of history, the history of historical practice, and the history of scriptural exegesis are importantly intertwined and enmeshed. It's a fascinating book. It's Really interesting for its methodology in addition to um, the story that it's telling. And I really, really enjoyed reading it and talking with Nick about it. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. And I also hope that you have a chance to go out and read the book because it's very much worth reading for anybody interested in not just early modernity, not just British history, but the craft of what it does look like, what it can look like, and what it has looked like to try to understand and write about the past in history. So enjoy. We're here today to talk with Nicholas Popper about his new book, Walter Raleigh's History of the World and the Historical Culture of the Late Renaissance. Welcome to New Books in History, Nick, and thank you so much for making the time today to talk with me about your book.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Carla.
1: Of course. So Nick, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about your background? What brought you into the field of early modern history in the first place?
0: Um, well, I, it was a sort of roundabout reason. Uh, the, the honest reason is distribution requirements. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was interested in American history and was kind of forced to take European history courses in order to fulfill you know, institutional obligations. Uh, what I discovered was that early modern history was quite a lot more interesting than I thought it was, um, predominantly because I, I found it to be much more confusing and foreign and chaotic and, and alien. Than I had anticipated. You know, I'd been to Europe, but I'd never really studied European history. Um, and I found that both the history itself, but also the sort um, of preeminent historians of early modern Europe at that time. So, um, in particular, Carlo Ginsburg and Natalie Zeman Davis and Robert um I thought that they were doing really, really interesting work, and it seemed to me that there was a, a tremendous amount of uh, vibrancy to the study of early modern Europe that, that really attracted me very strongly. Uh, so that, that was why, what first drew me to it, I would have to say.
1: Mm-hmm. And you were, um, I mean, I happen to know this um, because I've known you for a little while, but you actually started out in graduate school doing history of science in particular. So how did you get there from early modern history in general? And then, and then we'll come back to the nature of the projects um, at hand.
0: Um, well, I kind of, in, in a little bit of seren- serendipity, I think, was probably the reason. Um, you know, I was very interested in these kinds of cultural histories and micro histories and, and, um, and social history as well And um, as an undergraduate, but I was pretty dissatisfied with the way that they, um, well, I, I was dissatisfied with the way that I was using them to try and think about the past. And I had a whole set of questions that really uh, derived from sort of mid-90s of uh, interest in critical theory and how one could use critical theory to talk about the past. Uh, when I was in college, you know, everyone was reading Foucault and Derrida and so on. Um, and I spent some time in that world, but it always seemed to me to be particularly divorced from experience. Um, and I don't mean to sound like some sort of, you know, um, but, I mean, I don't mean to dismiss what they did, but it always seemed to me that there could be very fruitful ways of applying some of the insights of the linguistic turn to history, which um, I was personally, personally not aware of. Um, so, one of the, the big sort of interesting questions for me was how you actually know about somebody else's thinking, um, and how you, you could use their text to think about, um, epistemology. Um, and so as a senior, as an, uh, a undergrad, um, senior, I wrote a thesis, uh, on magic and science and how, i sort of very now old fashioned seeming history of science problem, but how a figure like John Dee in this case could be both, um, committed practitioner of what I might call uh, occult arts, but also uh, uh, profoundly devoted to mathematical reasoning and all sorts of other aspects of learning that are now associated with um, at least the rise of, of modern science. Um, so I wrote this thesis, and then I was applying for grad school, and people kept telling me that I w- uh, should look at history of science programs. And my initial response was something like, you know, science has a history? Uh, I have no idea. Yeah. Um, this looks <laughs> interesting. Um So, but uh, indeed it does, obviously, and so I I applied to the history of science programs because it did seem to me like they furnished some really um, compelling and powerful means of talking about the production of knowledge, which is really what I was interested in. Um, And, uh, yeah, I got to grad school, and in fact, um, I mean, history of science was a far more interesting and expansive field than... I really could assimilate, I think. Um, but what I took from it was that there were all these profa- uh, really interesting and useful ways to talk about coordinating material evidence, epistemology, um, sort of practice, um, and all—all all these very interesting questions as to how that could be usefully directed at the early modern world in order to think about um, how institutions, structures, uh, and so on change, um, and. I I still actually conceptualize myself as, in large measure, a historian of science because the guiding methodologies at the heart of the history of science, at least since it's been practiced, probably since the 90s, um, I consider to be the, the methodology that I most often use amongst the various ones that I, I do employ. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I guess that's what I would say. I'm a bit of an eclectic historian in my mind, but uh, history of science looms very, very large.
1: And that's actually something that I'm sure will come up in the course of the conversation that's very much present in the spirit of the book and some of the approaches um, that are taken in the book that we're talking about, even if it's not always explicitly rendered as um, history of science in those terms. So Mm -hmm. the book itself, um, the book looks at the historical culture of the Renaissance through the lens of the work of an individual. And this is a, a very important individual, a really fascinating individual. This is Walter Raleigh. Now, while Walter Raleigh was incarcerated in the Tower of London, he wrote this massive and influential history of the world. So um, you you lay out at the beginning of the book, and this is just for listeners who may not be familiar with Raleigh or or with um, the existence of this work, he intends to create, as you tell us, three long volumes, um, but after seven years of work, he manages to only produce one, but it winds up being really, really influential. After its publication, um, as you tell us, there are over a dozen editions reprints and abridgments. And in the course of giving us what winds up being this really interesting account of not just the work itself, but of his practices and of the ways that his practices reflect a a transformation in not just historiography, but in Renaissance culture and politics. And we'll get to all, or or at least some of these transformations. Um, Over the course of this, you can see how you're interested in the kinds of or you seem, at least from my perspective as a reader, to be interested in the kinds of um, phenomena that, um, as you've mentioned before, tend to be the kinds of phenomena that increasingly interest historians of science, an emphasis on practice instead of ideas, an emphasis on the circulation of knowledge rather than just origin and progress stories and many other things. So it's a fascinating work, and we're going to get to it in detail. Um, But before we do that, can you say a little bit about what brought you to this topic in particular, how did you come to Raleigh and his work, and decide to work on this um, for this project?
0: Uh, well, this the book started as a dis- as my dissertation, uh, and the reason I lit a- on this book and historical culture in general, um, there are a couple of reasons. One was I I knew that uh, the study of history in the early modern period, or sort of, the study of history by early modern historians, um, was and that is people living in the, the 15th, 16th, 17th century, um, was really an interesting phenomenon that had been treated by many people, but um, but there wasn't a, a really um, huge, sort of significant big narrative surrounding it. And it seemed to me, as I, as I read more and more in the secondary literature surrounding this, that there was a lot of insight to be had, right? That there was still a lot to be discovered about how people work, why they work, um, why they made the decisions they did, what drew their interest. Um, the kinds of, of things that had tended to be studied when people looked at the histor- historical work of the 16th 17th centuries in particular um, had tended to focus uh, on one of two things, either the formation of the modern historical method um, or alternatively the formation of modern historical consciousness. Um, now, I mean, as a historian of science, this seemed to me like an absolutely perfect uh, subject to study, um, in particular, because um, a lot of the traditional history of science subjects uh, at that point in time did not appeal to me um, for a variety of reasons. One was that this is now in the early 2000s, and it seemed to me like there had been a kind of uh, there was a kind of detente in the culture wars. I'm not sure that I actually think that that's true, but I thought that then. Uh, the second is that um, the kind of political battles surrounding history of science um, didn't make sense anymore, in a way. Um a lot of the, the the sort of sociology of scientific knowledge, uh, that kind of approach, uh, that had been really powerful, I think, in a, maybe the late seventies and eighties, when there were these questions around the abuse of science, In the early two thousands, uh, with the rise of a certain kind, or the re-rise in a certain kind of radical religious perspective, um, it seemed uh, I didn't feel like the, the the political battles that that SSK approach were part of uh, appealed to me at all. Um, so I, I thought, you know, there was this great kind of field of knowledge in the, in the early modern period, that is the study of the past, that had not been investigated using the techniques and methods of the history of science, despite the fact that it, it was ripe for it. And in, I mean, in, again, if you think of it as being um, the study of an object that positivists would describe as an uh, objective, um, and yet nonetheless was characterized by this sort of teeming multiplicity uh, and and sort of variety... It seemed like a really almost um, obvious or certainly at the very least very appealing thing to study. What drew me to Raleigh was a couple of things. One was that he wrote this very long, very well-known history, and he was himself a a figure who's well-known, but he's well-known for a lot of other things, and the history itself has often been treated as kind of auxiliary uh, to the interests surrounding him. Um and I thought that there might be a way to tie his historical production in with uh, the his significance as a whole. Um so there there was that there was the fact that um in terms of the evidence that was available concerning the history, it was almost a perfect storm of uh existence but restriction, um insofar as, you know, the the book existed. Uh A library catalog that he had kept existed, he was very good about, uh, he was was decent at least and good by contemporary standards in in terms of citing who he was, the authors that he was quoting often, Um, and there was a a manuscript notebook of his, but not, you know, thousands and thousands of pages. Um, There was a published edition of his letters. You know, there was a lot of work, but just not so much that it made the project daunting. It was enough that it made it seem big, but feasible. And the third, and honestly, the most important thing, because of my, my own inclinations as a historian, the way that I got to it was that I, you know, I read a bunch of histories, um, written in the 16th and 17th century, and they all seemed a little difficult, I mean, difficult to understand, unusual, not what I was expecting. Um, and for me, what I was looking for was something that, that I had to explain, you know, something I didn't understand, something that, that, uh, I needed to spend, I was going to spend, you know, Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, who knew how long. I'm trying to understand this thing. I'm, I figured that it better be something that I did not get at all initially. And I have to admit, the first time I read The History of the World, I simply did not have any idea of what I was looking at. Um, it seems so profoundly different from history writing, uh, from, from many, uh, well, it seems so profoundly different from, uh, history writing today, obviously, but I think so connected to various other kinds of ways of knowing that, al- that also just did not immediately resonate with me. Uh, it was profoundly tedious, for one thing, but it was just very often list after list of opinions by about um, arcane questions enumerated by people I had never heard of um, and him not coming to a conclusion right, about this. Um, there were all these descriptions of these geographical places, um, you know, drawn from the scripture, and kind of trying to figure out where they were. But I didn't had never heard of these places, right? There was all there's there an enormous amount. I mean, it's about three thousand pages in its modern edition, and I understood very, very, very little of it. And I kind of figured that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess as a, as a historian, I'm, I'm driven by sources, um, and my idea was that, you know, I'm going to try and figure out what this thing is. That seems like a, an appropriate project for a dissertation. So that was how I, I lit on this one.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, how did you transform this from a dissertation to a book manuscript? Were there any major changes or notable aspects of the process that you'd want to share?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it's actually pretty substantially changed, which I did not realize until I went back and looked at the dissertation, um, you know, not, not that long ago. Um for one, the, I mean, there's a, a whole sort of reordering uh, that's just reorganized in general. The the book has, um, well, I'll start with the dissertation. The dissertation had kind of three units. There was a unit on the the background to Raleigh and, and this sort of description of the history of the world, and a background on historical culture. Then there were uh, a couple of chapters, in essence, on how he, um, how he chose sources, focusing on the study of technological chronology. Um, how he read his sources, focusing on the study of, uh, sort of geographical questions, and then how he tried to synthesize the evidence that he made out of his sources into narratives. Um, and that focused on a, a couple of different well, really on the sort of his ideas about travel and migration in the in the ancient world. And then there were three chapters, I believe, on how he applied these to um, uh, various phenomena of the early modern world. so uh, magic. Politics and war, um, and the in those chapters he basically disappeared. Um, the dissertation is really, really uses Raleigh to get at other at, at the broader culture as a whole. But there are these long stretches where Raleigh is kind of insignificant because what I'm trying to do is lay out this terrain or this landscape of early modern historical learning. Um, And Raleigh sometimes, um, in essence, in order for me to think through his significance on paper, I had to write, you know, sometimes 50 pages or whatever, in which he simply didn't appear. Um, And so what the the dissertation was, was was really the kind of a guide map at the outset to understanding uh, early modern historical analysis as a whole. Now, when it came time to write the book, uh, I did realize that uh, it needed to be narrowed in more centrally on on Raleigh. and it also, I thought, needed to have a, kind of a better organizational rationale than I'm going to study Raleigh for a little bit and then sort of stop doing so with no real explanation as to why I, I do. Um, and it, but it did occur to me that I had um, kind of laid out the material in this, this way that you could see uh, the process or, uh, by which Raleigh works, um, exemplified in how by – for Carving up his working process uh, and showing how he applied certain aspects of it to um, specific problems that his uh, task of producing a universal history required. So the first chapter is, in essence, on why he chose to embark on this project in the first place um, and what what the what the context was that, that that suggested to him that this was a good idea. Uh, the second chapter is uh, remains on chronology and his sources and and really talked about how it was that he assembled materials around him to try to answer these questions. And the third chapter is on his reading, and again, that focused on geography. Um, the fourth chapter was, uh, was much more on, um, was again on how he animated these bits of evidence into the narrative. Um, but then what I, I realized was that um, I needed to tie the, the remaining bits into Raleigh a bit better. So the fifth chapter ended up being on presentation, what, uh, what it was that he to show himself or how it was he tried to package this incredible labor that he had performed when publicizing it and, and, and sending it out into the world and then the, the the last chapter ended up being on readers responses to it um, the way that it in fact was received and transmitted into these various environments and the kind of meanings that readers um, imposed impose on it um, and for me it ended up being much more uh, rather than a kind of aspects of or series of investigations into the history of the world. The the, the book itself is much more a way of talking about the process of production as illuminating um, practices throughout early modern Europe as a whole um, that both is more narrowly focused on Raleigh but does a better job of coordinating with bigger transformations. Um, and the real reason for that in the end is that... Um, I, this reorganization, you know, once I got the reorganization right, I realized that there's a whole series of questions about significance that i had not been asking. Um, again, I mean, I think I'm somebody who's pretty source driven as a historian. I kind of wanted to understand the text that I was working with and that took me years and years and years and years. Um, but the, 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 so the, the big questions, the big why questions couldn't really come together until long after, um, You know, long after I come come to some answers about what it even was. Uh, I guess that's sort of backwards for a lot of historians, but for me, it was the series of why questions that drove the, the, the reshaping of the book, rather than the desire to answer one big one that had started that had been there since the beginning.
1: Great, thank you, Nick. So let's actually, since we've been talking about him and talking around him for um, 15 minutes or so, let's actually get right into the subject of the book itself, and that is um, Walter Raleigh Mm -hmm. and and his work. So the first chapter, as you mentioned, lays out the context for his work and project, and it starts out with him in the tower. So he's in the tower, he's condemned to death, because especially so much of What is going to animate his decisions as you, you know, as you present them to us uh, regarding his historical practice, the way he's construing evidence later on in the book, rest on understanding his relationship with some of the figures who put him in the tower in the first place and some of the major political threads that are, uh, that he's growing up in, that he's surrounded by. Why don't we start off um, by saying a little bit about that context? So can you say just a little bit for listeners about um, about Raleigh? So sort of what gets him into the Tower in the first place? And what do we need to know in particular about his relationship with James um, to understand the kinds of moves that he's going to make later when we get more into the body of the book?
0: Sure, of course. Uh, so Raleigh is you know, best known as uh, one of Queen Elizabeth's favorites, right? And that is this, this position at court where he is supposed to be, in essence, part of the – sort of a central part of the entertainment surrounding the Queen. Um, and he gets to this position in the, in the 1580s, um, sort of remains a little bit unclear at what exactly precipitates this very uh, quick rise that he has to the Queen's attention. But, but all of a sudden, in the early 1580s, he is this figure at court who is has uh, drawn an enormous amount of attention and is uh, evidently great fun, and is somebody who Elizabeth really, really likes to have around. Um, now, as is her typical practice, she... Gradually assigns him certain kinds of tasks within her regime. Um, these are often uh, ways to ensure that he's um, on very, very solid financial footing. So he ends up being Captain of the Guard and uh, Lord Warden of the Stannaries, and he gets all these kinds of positions within the Elizabethan regime. Uh, but he never actually achieves the very highest position, which is to be appointed a Privy Counselor. Um, and it seems pretty clear that he wants to be, and the Privy council is the sort of the, the, the most, the, the innermost chamber of advisors uh, for the Queen um, and he's always kept it an arm's length from there despite the fact that as I said I think it's pretty clear that that he would like to be put on the Privy Council and and, and often has an enormous amount of uh, influence over the Queen uh, and o- over the Queen and her, her decision-making um, now they go, their relationship it turns out to be a bit rocky when he marries somebody else and he goes through these kinds of ups and downs with her um, but his time at the court, serves to both give him a, a certain amount of authority, but also uh, establish, give him relatively uncertain or uh, sort of changeable relationships with, the, uh, with her privy counselors and the people who are advising her. Um, and he's, they are often aristocrats who are dependent on her, but slightly, but have a certain amount of capacity for more, not independent, um, sort of conceptualizing themselves as, as independent, um, which he does not. So at the end of her life, you know, he remains in, in incredibly loyal to her, um, even as these other figures at court, most notably Robert Cecil, um, are beginning to maneuver to prepare for her death by beginning to um, sort of send out healers to James, who was at that time the King of Scotland, um, and try and establish the uh, groundwork for a relationship for after the succession. Raleigh doesn't do this and what ends up happening is that his enemies end up corralling James's favor. And so when James comes down, in essence, the well is poisoned against Raleigh immediately. He is, uh, he does, he associates it a little bit indiscreetly with certain kinds with, with a, a set of people who seem to be, uh, interested in overturning James's, uh, coronation in essence. Um, and he is, uh, charged with sedition, um, and tre- and treason really, um, them to death James puts standing execution keeps him in the tower and that's kind of where Raleigh stays for the next 13 years constantly trying to agitate to get out um, and what he's constantly the way to get out is to demonstrate um, his loyalty to James but what he also tries to do is demonstrate his fitness to provide counsel to demonstrate that he would in fact be somebody who would be good to have within the, the Jacobean government um, and he does this by prov- providing, all these kinds uh, so of manuscript advices, policy papers, um, on issues like the uh, uh, the marriage of the, the James's children, um, and the, the um, organization or the power for power dynamics amongst the dynastic states in Europe at the time. He, he continues to basically try and be a royal counselor just while uh, imprisoned in the, in the Tower of London. This is all agitating towards trying and to demonstrate that he is i say would be should be granted his freedom and, and would in fact be could be uh, an important part of, of James's regime um, and I, my, my argument is that this is what the history is as well that the history is one plank of these in this effort to try and demonstrate what uh what a, what a fantastic counselor he would be um, but that Raleigh sort of hurries it out to press at a moment when James's regime is faltering, when a couple of his key counselors have either died or been disgraced, and Raleigh really thinks that this is a moment where his reputation could be restored and he could be freed and given this rather prominent place within uh, the council, at and, and James's side, in essence.
1: Now, if he's interested in um, showing that he's fit to provide counsel, at what point does writing history Become something that you would do as a statesman to show that you're fit to provide counsel. So, where does historical practice come into this larger context? Is something that you'd be interested in doing in order to show James that James is want to listen to him? Well,
0: this is really um, a phenomenon that I think early moderns would say was drawn from, I mean, they would say they saw it in the ancient world. Um, and the way that I trace it is that this is uh, one aspect of well, what we might call the Renaissance, right? The rise of, of humanistic knowledge. Um, in in and I I mean, the way that I, I at least narrate it here is that it really dates to the the early fifteenth century and the Italian city states. Um, which I mean, I think one could argue reasonably about this. The trajectory that Raleigh inherits, or kind of the the world as seen through his sources, would suggest that. Um, although there are, are definitely medieval precedents for this. Um, but I mean, it, through his sources, that's what it would look like. And what it would look like is that there um that there's uh, a kind of argument. Being enacted, um, be being played out by early modern counselors about what provides fitness to provide counsel. In the early 15th century, there, there could be this argument that learning, in essence, provided fitness as opposed to pedigree or lineage, right, or, or warlikeness, right? Those, those might be the kind of competing, um, explanations or uh, rationalizations for why an individual was suitable to provide counsel to the powerful. Um, but history em- emerges as particularly powerful in this context, really in the mid-15th century. Um, I mean, Naples is particularly important for this process, I think. Um, but it's, it's the Italian city-states of the 15th century which are just undergoing such remarkable transformations and, and crises, really, over and over again. And what historians offer is a couple of things. One, they offer the ability to go and either find or create casts. Which legitimate these often quite spurious or recent political entities, um, to, you know, to give them kind of, um, precedence or prestige or, um, sort of antiquity of the sort that, that would confer authenticity, uh, legitimacy on them. Um, and secondly, to then use the, the tools of historical narration to, um, to, to create, to, to, to augment the sense of, of virtue and then to demonstrate that, um, that the, the the individuals at the head of these regimes were, in fact, these great exemplary figures whose virtue and morality uh, should be imitated by all, and that they were, in fact, is precisely the right people from a historical and moral philosophical position to run um, governments. So historians become incredibly important in the fifteenth in the mid fifteenth century in Italy, really, because uh, of a way in which the fifteenth that moment is transforming so rapidly. that historians offer. This, this this illusion of continuity.
1: So the question then becomes, what does history, I mean, this this word that we've been throwing around that we think we understand the meaning of, what does history actually look like in this period? And one of the really interesting transformations that you're showing um, that Raleigh is right in the center of is really a a change in approach regarding what history um, looks like, what its methodologies are, and how historians or scholars are going about reading and writing histories in light of um, trying to come up with uh, ideas about causation, ideas about sort of prophecy of the future, and many other kinds of things that we'll we'll talk about at least some of. So um, you mention here the importance of Raleigh actually developing this technique in which he's synthesizing small bits of evidence gathered from a really wide range of texts, and, and we'll, you know, talk about some of those sources or we can talk about them now if you want um, to bring them together. And this is the basis of his history, which is um, a form of prudent counsel that he's offering. So why is this um, or can you talk a little bit about the ways in which this approach of synthesizing bits of evidence from um, a wide range of text how is that new? Um, what's new about that? And in what way is that methodology important for understanding um, his work and, and for what comes next?
0: Great, yes. Um, great question. So um, the way that most of these 15th century historians work, as near, near as I can tell Um and there's a couple of ways. One, if they're writing the history of the present, it's, it's relatively straightforward. They, they write a kind of narration from their perspective. Um, they're writing a history of, of, uh, uh sort of an ancient period or a period long before they were alive, they tend to either summarize or synthesize, um, a few predecessors, and they're almost all narrative histories. That is, sources that were intentionally written, uh, or sort of conscient- consciously written to be part of the genre of history. That is, a narration of events. Um, that, I mean, the 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 that's the basis of historical production in the fifteenth century is that there are these kinds of generic things that are clearly histories because they're intended to give a I mean, I a true narration of events. Um, what happens is that towards the end of the fifteenth century, there there is this explosion, really more into the sixteenth century, there are these explosion of competing narratives. Um, that emerge from a variety of different places. I mean, the, the Reformation might be seen as one of the, the, the most profound and most significant version of this. But I see, and through all the sources in essence, um, the, the most important one of these kinds of revisionist histories is being Ennius's, uh, Agnes of Viterbo's, um, uh, reinterpretation of ancient history that is published in 1498. I mean, this is a very, very wild and Praise history, which totally re-articulates um, what the ancient world or sort of conceptualizes what the ancient world was like. Um, Annius was an advisor to the Pope. Um, and he sort of wanted to have more authority, but he was really um, was, uh, sort of suspicious of the pagan ancients—pagan um, Romans, pagan Greeks—and when he looked around and saw that that humanists really revered these kinds of figures, he uh, sort of was, was tremendously alarmed. Um, and so what he did was, in essence, uh, try to basically prophesy the ancient world, um, by depicting an ancient world in which the ancient Romans and Greeks were these great forgers. Um, they were also destroyers of, uh, really powerful intellectual or works produced by, um, very sort of proto-Christian, uh, descendants of Noah in Italy in particular. Um, he, he depicted this, this, this Europe of the ancient world that was very, very, you know, seemingly Christian and that the pagans, uh, interpagans had then come across uh, along and destroyed. I mean, his evidence for this was, um... Both his own illumination, but also this very kind of cut and paste uh, aspects of authentic sources that, um, or sort of these these excerpts from ancient sources which he cut and paste in order, and then sort of glued together with this, this adhesive of his own imagination in order to create this really bizarre um, uh, past. Right uh, now, this, these are, I mean, he's. Uh, his views were debunked, in essence, very, very quickly. They, they end up being very influential because they serve a lot of powerful interests. They, embedded within his histories are these narratives that exalt modern um, sort of the ancient families of, of modern kings, um, that give these wonderful and pious antiquities to ancient Dahl, for example, and ancient Germany, um, and they end up being very, very useful. so what, what the the net of I mean, what the end effect of his work is is to very much destabilize the early modern perception of what it, um the ancient world had been, right and to give a whole set of competing narratives to what antiquity had been like that no longer placed uh, Latin and Greek antiquity in the the foremost place. Um, yeah to address this this destabilize I mean to address this, um, hi- historians started to, wonder you know, what it was that they could do in order to resolve these competing narratives. Um, and at the same time that they're doing this, they they, they try to answer questions about um, how they could understand the ancient world better um, and make use of it a little bit better um, in terms of understanding causation in the present. I mean, there's a sort of twin, uh, twin process going on here of them believing less and less that they understand the ancient world, but being more and more certain that it's necessary to do so. Um, Because that knowledge is being lost. So, uh, from really the early 16th century, and, and I mean, 1531 is kind of a watershed year um, because of the publication of Machiavelli's works, but also texts by Juan Luis Vives and Thomas Eliot. Um, from that, from the early 16th century forward, there was an increased emphasis on the idea that history should um, lay out causation, right? It should be about narrating causation rather than. To be these kind of literary um, and, uh, articulations of virtue and vice. Right? I think I say at some point that they, they go from being the theater of virtue to being a theater of causation, um, and that's really the kind of change that, that, that takes place. Um, trying to understand causation is, of course, a tricky thing, and they start looking all over the place um, and becoming ever more convinced that even the biggest changes have often quite slight or small causes. Um, and as a result, what they end up doing is trying to look uh, in as many places as possible to try and deduce the, the particulars, as they would have called, as the translation would have been, um, that might lie behind some of these transformations. So they start looking not just in these narrative histories for evidence, but they start looking to material culture that's left over more. Uh, they start looking for non-narrative uh, evidence, contextual um, so evidence, so, rec- uh, so records, legal documents, things of that nature. Um, they start looking at landscapes. They start expanding their notion of what a source for a history might be, rather dramatically. Um, and they start looking at, at, at sources from that might not have, have gained um, from cultures that they might not have, have taken particularly seri- seriously um, previously either. So there's this, this tremendous expansion in the range of sources that they deem potentially useful for eliminating the past. Um, and indeed, one of the things that happens is that the ac- range of access to that source to the to, uh, or access to a larger range of sources becomes one of the things that um, identifies somebody as a, a more capable or, or more profound, more, more credible historian.
1: Now, this is actually a really exciting point for uh, anybody who's interested in history, because this is a point at which, as you're showing, archival research becomes a cornerstone of historical method and for the education of a statesman for the first time. And as, um, you're sort of introducing us to this, we're also introduced to the personal archive of Raleigh himself. So while he's away, um, and this is no ordinary incarceration, he has five, more than, I think, 500 books with him. These are books in six languages, five of which he can read. Um, and as we go further into your book about his book and, uh, and the larger context that it's a part of, you're taking us into, um, really in a more, a detailed way, the methods that he's using to read and to work with these sources. So you bring us um, in the second chapter into the larger context of the study of chronology, and you show us here the ways that um, Raleigh is using the different sources at his fingertips in order to engage in larger debates about chronology, which are actually really, really important to historical practice at the time. Now, as part of this larger story, And as part of the much wider um, range of sources that are being used by Raleigh and others in this period, and as part of historical practice and methodology, what you're showing here is that um, especially given this example of chronology, which had prior to Raleigh largely been a kind of scriptural exegesis, while that's true, what's happening is that the emphasis on using such a wide range of sources actually Unintentionally undermines the authority of scripture in this period. And because this undermining of scripture's authority seems like such an important point that you're making here, could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Um, I mean, this, and this is one of the, the, the bigger arguments that is embedded in, in the book, uh, which is that, you know, all of these techniques and all these practices that historians use are not meant to, uh, overturn what they view as being, uh, um, Uh, there's there's nothing, there tends to be very little that's radical or uh, intentionally revolutionary about what they're doing, Um, but there are these effects of these practices that they sometimes are um, incapable of of constraining. Um, So this is a perfect case, uh, sort of example of this, Um, because the, the real charge, the real interest in scriptural chronology Develops in the wake of the Reformation. There's, there's this kind of arms race between Protestants above all varieties and Catholics to figure out who can provide the most literal account of world history through Scripture. Right? This is a kind of great intellectual goal that, that everyone is striving for. Um, and the way to do this and to make sure, uh, uh, the way to, the, the problem is that there are multiple different scriptural traditions and, and within those traditions there are multiple different chronologies and Scripture does not, I mean, it is not you have written in this neatly chronological fashion where there is a year years given. There are all these problems as in terms of dating the, 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 the age of the world based on the fact that scripture does not um, sort of lay it out for you at all. It has to be interpreted. Um, so really from the 1530s, what starts happening is that uh, individuals start trying to figure out ways, things to measure scripture against. Or other sources which can provide evidence as, as keys to lock down events that are, that are mentioned in scripture. And the, the, there's a way, the, an effort to try and create this kind of scaffolding or this, this, uh, the, uh um, sort of chronological tool that will help map scripture uh, as a whole. And the, and the, and the point of this all is to affirm the literal truth of it, right? That's, that's the goal. You, you, you take these other sources and you use them to illuminate what is the clear and singular and literal truth of scripture. That's the goal of, of all of these people. But what ends up happening is that, is a couple of things. One is that um, th- some of the problems within Scripture seem to really be insurmountable, right? So the agreement is not quickly forthcoming. In fact, uh, you know, disputes just multiply over and over and over again, and you get these points. When let's say the 1570s, where one, you know, there's a, a Lutheran chronologer who, who basically writes to uh, somebody about chronology, sitting along the lines of, well, every Lutheran has a different idea of what the, the, the chronology of the world is. Um so this problem is not is exacerbated rather than aided by the by the expansion of the number of credible sources. The second thing is that what you there end up being these kinds of, of shifts where scripture itself starts to get assessed by how well it convenes with other sources. Right? There is a kind of um credibility that is allotted to all kinds of different sources, you know, calendars from the Egyptian tradition, uh, uh eclipses, um, all kinds of different um, you know, narratives, of uh, historical narratives from the Greek and, and Roman world, even things like Aeneas, um, there's a way in which all of these sources are kind of thrown together, and what becomes the determining factor of whether or not a chronology seems to work is how well it absorbs um, all of these bits of evidence, amongst which Scripture may have a privileged position, but it doesn't have a kind of, um, over, uh, sort of, consumptively, uh, uh privileged uh privilege position. In fact, what, what has a privileged position is the method. Right? The method that scholars use to try and break down all the texts that they have and unite them in such a way that makes sense of all of them. Um, and so what emerges as uh to, to sort of limit the authority of scripture or to change the authority of scripture, I think would be a better way of putting it, um, is the notion that the the modern commentator consolidating and reconstituting the past from all these sources, can see that there are these ways in which Scripture um, does not provide all the keys and does not provide all the answers to to ancient chronology and thus needs to, of necessity, be supplemented by them.
1: Now, in a fascinating way, Nick, the book moves from a discussion of Raleigh's sources to your own sources in putting together um, what Raleigh's reading practices may have been, how he was actually... Using and reading all of these different sources at his disposal and putting them back together again to create his own stories. Chapter three focuses on one of these sources that you're using, which is this super fascinating, and as you um, mentioned in the book, little used source, and that's Raleigh's Geographical Notebook. Can you say a little bit about this source, about this geographical notebook, and about what um, this notebook actually tells us about what Raleigh's reading practices and methodologies probably looked like?
0: Sure. Absolutely. That's my, that is my favorite source that I use for, for, for uh, it, really, it really is um, sort of a fascinating thing. Um, you know, uh, notebooks, and, and commonplace books in particular, are, are something that early modern historians have studied quite a lot uh, in, in recent years. Um, The Raleigh's Geographical Notebook is is a really interesting version of this. Um, Most commonplace books, I mean, as they were just, um, which is this, um, as other modern historians understand them, are these books that scholars, and actually not scholars, keep, which have these sorts of often moral uh, headings, and then you you enter in under the moral headings um, for statements from Plutarch or Cicero or whatever about it. So you might have a heading like, you know, Envy, and then you, you take little excerpts from something that you read around Envy and then have it in your notebook. And then you have this collection of, of knowledge, uh, or sort of, or extracts on these particular issues. Well, Raleigh adapts that, um, and, um, to figure out a way to, uh, learn more about the geography of the world by compiling sort of geographical particulars. Um, so what he does is, is an alphabetical, kind of alphabetical headings, um, and so what he does is basically just have place names and he enters in on, on all these pages, uh, little excerpts describing where that place is, according to the authorities that he's read. So for example, you know, Mount Ararat, he collects a, a whole series of opinions as to where Mount Ararat is in, in Syria in Armenia and so on and so forth. And they are very, very narrowly circumscribed. They are these very clipped little, uh, descriptions of the place with all other kinds of commentary about them removed. Um, but what he does is he goes through all of these sources and, and and just kind of enumerates these, all the ranges of opinions on these very technical and dryly geographical questions that he has, and just ends up with these, these sort of burdensome lists of toponyms and their possible locations. Um, and what I do is I show how this is actually the product of a certain particular kind of attention while reading. Right? And this, again, sort of draws on a, a history of science literature. Um, and I, I show that this note-taking is a very sort of conscious and deliberate way to create a repository of geographical evidence that he can then use to try and resolve certain kinds of geographical problems. Um, but it, what it does is it creates this, these mounds of evidence that he then needs to figure out how to negotiate, um, which is what he does in the, in, in the history of the world. Um but what he's what he's done, the other thing that I, I should say about this is that what he's done is, is in fact, derived this from his sources. Um, David Petraeus Ch- 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 and Abraham Ortelius, a couple of other people, talk about how this is how they've created these geographical dictionaries and geographical encyclopedias that they've produced in the early modern period. Um, and this, I mean, is one of the sort of ways in which his practices are, are, are really closely connected to those of often more famous, but sometimes less famous, um, contemporaries Uh, Contemporary Continental Scholars. Here what you can see is is him adapting or or manipulating their practices for making geographical knowledge uh, for his own purposes.
1: I should um, mention also for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to read the book, in in addition to the location of Mount Ararat, there's some really wonderful case studies that you give us in the book that are just really fascinating examples of uh, Raleigh's practices in action. and, And situate what he's doing within a larger context. And so you're talking about, um, in the book, discussions about the location of the Garden of Eden, about the final rest, resting place of Noah's Ark. Um, and so there are some really fascinating um, examples and cases in the book um, that really illustrate what you're talking about in terms of Raleigh's use of sources and his larger context. Now, among the sources that are coming in um, to not just Raleigh's own library, but also to the world of... The kind of scholarship about history in the past um, and geography that he's dealing with are travelers' reports. So as new travelers' reports are coming into European scholarship at this time, scholars are adapting their previous methods of note-taking to incorporate them. And you talk about that um very, very nicely in chapter three. Chapter four focuses in on travel as a theme. Um, and you talk in this chapter not just about Raleigh's own experiences as an explorer and as a traveler but also the ways that travel accounts and travel as a theme become increasingly important to Raleigh and others who are writing about um, the ancient world and who are trying to explain change historically. So can you talk a little bit about this importance of travel, um, both to Raleigh's practice, but also um, why that's important to understanding larger changes that he represents?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, travel is really, really, I mean, obviously, I mean, a large. Part of the significance of early modern Europe um, derives from the fact that there are this great sort of um, well, great uh, this 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 large movement of Europeans moving all over the world and and uh, recontextualizing the globe. Right. Um, and Raleigh is actually one of these guys, right? I mean, he goes off to Guyana, he goes to he's, he's at the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Um, he travels all over the world. Uh, one of the things, though, that I see uh, early modern scholars as doing is use as is. is recognizing that there are these grand shifts that are taking place because of their movement throughout the world, and then projecting these backwards, right? And using the travels of ancient peoples to try and explain why their evidence is so diffuse and so different. So someone like Raleigh will say... uh, well, you know, when when faced with these heap of often quite contradictory particulars about the geography of the ancient world that he that he's created by reading his sources and in his notebook, will say, okay, well, how do I explain these various uh, conflicting descriptions of speci- specific places, or how do I explain why two very different places are called the same thing? And what he does is he comes up, or he, he uses, or, or sort of projects, or conjectures, conjectures travel and, and human movement in the ancient world as the way of explaining why these various names have come to pass or why these particular transformations have, have happened. And travel becomes a real agent of change in antiquity um, As a, a, for someone like Raleigh because it is, I think, what he sees in the present as being a, a real engine for, for, for alteration. Um, so what he does is he sort of creates these narratives of movements of individuals in the ancient world Shows how they carry place names from place to place, or transmit certain kinds of belief or knowledge from place to place, or how some uh, the, the 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 um uh, sort of colonization of one locale will yet mean that it is called something else in a different language or a different language. You know that that becomes a dominant term for it. Um, and and really, travel becomes at the center of the explanation for why all change happens in the ancient world. Um, and I mean, in essence, this is because they see it as being you know, this. This is a kind of commentary on their present. Um, one of the key points that I, that I really try to make uh, in this chapter is that cha- that travel is not being seen as being this kind of secular phenomena, nor is it really secularizing. What it does is provide for someone like Raleigh uh, a kind of um, sign that illuminates what providen- illumin- illuminates providential meaning, right? That, that one of the ways that God sends messages, at least he thinks, God sends messages to humanity about, uh, the purpose of, uh, of it all is by coordinating these travels between, uh, travels and shifts and changes in such a fashion that it's kind of dimly visible what the divine pattern and plan are. Um, and so for Raleigh, unearthing these travels and seeing how it was that these grand alterations have taken place takes on really heightened and, and and foremost significance as a way to understand the, um, the significance of the, you know, sort of earthly theater for all scholars and to, and to help them um, create s- stable and secure knowledge that will sort of return them to the bosom of their creator.
1: Great, thank you. Now, how the chapter here, called Presentation, Political Practice in the Past, that I'm not going to ask you to talk about, but I want to just mention um, for listeners, this is a chapter that really looks in detail about, or it looks in detail at how Raleigh is presenting his political Um, Advice and uh, on political institutions and war to James in particular through this history, and we see this really interesting story here where Raleigh is trying to convince James in particular to adopt this anti-Spanish policy, and you're showing us how Raleigh is actually very carefully crafting his accounts of historical events, including Alexander the Great and the conquest of Alexander the Great, and in doing so, really subtly. Um, inserting cues that are supposed to communicate to James things about, um, you know, James's own policies in terms of war and politics, but also policies toward Raleigh himself. And so you're reminding us here and elsewhere, among many other beautiful things that this chapter does, that Raleigh's interest in writing his history in the way he did were both um, coming from a concern with larger political and social Um, phenomena that are happening at the time that he's embroiled in, um, but also a concern for his own well-being and for his own future um, and, uh, you know, and health, personal and professional health. Now, um, I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about that because I do want to spend time asking you to talk a little bit about the next chapter, which is this really, really fascinating account of what you call the afterlife of the history of the world um, of Raleigh's text And what this, one of the reasons for me this is so fascinating is that you're focusing here on the traces, among other things, that Raleigh's, or that readers, rather, of Raleigh's work left on copies of the book and on the way that the text was excerpted and reprinted. So this is a really fascinating way of reading um, annotations and marginalia, and I wanted to just save a little bit of time to ask you about this. So could you um, talk a little bit about this this chapter, and in particular, what are some of the most important ways that readers annotated their copies of Raleigh's history, and for you and your research, what were some of the most interesting notes or marginalia that you came across in your research for this chapter?
0: Great, yeah, I'd be happy to do so. so when I started this project, I, sort of, I I knew that everyone talked about how big of a, uh, that, that there was a lot um, from Richard's page to Raleigh's History of the World, but I had the suspicion that because it was so long and tedious that nobody read it. Um, and so in my sort of initial burst of, of this research, I would take a look at a copy here and there, um, and uh, I, I always knew that I was interested in the reader's responses to it. Um, I did not expect to discover the incredible range of responses and the incredible volume of responses um, that, I, that I did discover. And in fact, it ended up being this, this significant problem. Of how do you tell a story when there are all these uh, often quite contradictory um, responses to the history? Um, what I ended up doing was I, I looked at I think more than two hundred different copies of the history, of which maybe fifteen to twenty percent had um, annotation that you could actually do something with. Um, one of my my main tra- uh, one of the the ways in which I was trained in grad school was as a, hist- uh, a historian of the book, um, and a lot of a lot of my, this whole project, in fact, derives from overlaps between uh, history of science and history of the book as methodologies, um, in particular in the, in the sense that there's a very for materialist approach to knowledge underlying both of them. Um, so there wasn't—so I went and I looked at all of these kinds of things and was trying to be as attentive as possible to context, to, to response, and to the way in which these notes were in a certain kind of um, dialogue with Raleigh's text itself, um, but always trying to be very sensitive to the context in which these notes may have been produced, while aware that they were often uh, entirely irrecoverable. Um, and as I said, the, the thing that really struck me was how many different ways you could read this history, and how few of the, the readings of the history were, in fact, uh, of the sort that Raleigh would have wanted, right, or would have anticipated. And he wrote this to prove his own piety, his own prudence, his own humility, in a way, uh, and his own wisdom. and you know, some leaders felt this. Right. Some some leaders read the history and thought, "Wow, this is a real." I mean, they made comments like this. You know, it is a real crime that James has locked him up in the tower. And there are there are these these you know when 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 Raleigh at one point or another um, sort of notes that uh, one of the a tyrant's greatest crimes can be to uh, execute a, a learned man. There are there are these notes sometimes that say, "You know, I wish James had observed this with regard to Raleigh." Um, there are other figures who uh, were not so sympathetic. Right? There are figures who kind of describe, who make these notes about Raleigh's hypocrisies all the time. Um, when he, at one point Raleigh says something nasty, not particularly nice about Queen Elizabeth, and this, this reader notes something like, um, "You know, this was this is incredibly unfair and ungenerous and uncharitable of you." She made you who you are. Um, the same reader at one point when Raleigh criticizes Aristotle. Says something along the lines of, you know, you aren't even, you weren't even worthy to be thought of by Aristotle. Wow. But your, your, your intellect doesn't compare to him. Um, so there are, these, there are these kinds of readings that are very much about Raleigh's personality and his, bio, his life. Um, but there are lots and lots and lots of other kinds of readings also, many of which basically don't take Raleigh as author into consideration at all. But some of these are relatively straightforward. they are individuals who read the history of the world as being kind of a neutral narration of the history of the world, um, and you know, sort of take, it seems like take it as being a kind of textbook, as it were, for the past. There are other individuals who do read it as, as um, sort of sift through all of the uh, sort of tedious enumeration of various opinions on things like Guard- the Garden of Eden, and instead gravitate towards these moments of rhetorical flourish, in which Raleigh does show off the ability to actually write things in a quite manner, um, and they really focus on that and talk about him as a stylist. There are others like the, the royalist John Evelyn who see this as being a repository for counsel and policy and kind of you try to extract policies and and systems or patterns of causation to use in the present from the narrative that, that is in Raleigh. Um, and they see this, this being as being a, a very powerful mode of counsel. There are others who... Um, try and understand contemporary events by drawing just direct parallels between, say, the um, the, the the thirty tyrants in Athens and the English Civil War. Well, um, my narrative is that gradually, uh, kind of, emphasis. I mean, and I don't have a big narrative here, but my my impression from from reading through these is that um, what gradually happens in the eighteenth century is that the attention to the ways in which Raleigh produced this, right the the kind of meticulous practice, the the meticulous compilation of particulars from a wide range of sources and this assiduous effort to reanimate them through these narratives um, in order to to try and reconstitute uh, a past, that kind of attention disappears. And there's this revival of a classical idea in which history ought to be about true narrations of events that spur virtue and are and basically that it's a, a kind of literary genre rather than one about causation. Um, and so I try to, to draw that narrative, but because of the, the, the very contingent evidence, very circumstantial, very limited evidence that I have, I try to do it more as a kind of a mosaic, maybe, or a series of, uh, of impressionistic vignettes rather than um, hit my reader over the head with it, which I, I guess might be my strategy more in other chapters. But <laughs> this one, I... I kind of want to show the, 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 both the the fragility of this history, of this book history evidence, but also the way that once, if in a book like this, where you actually have an enormous number of traces of readers getting into it, you can see the kinds of varieties of readings that it would have, that, that, that it generated.
1: Well, thank you, Nick. Um, I, I've already taken up a lot of your time, so. Um, before we wrap up, I, I don't want to ask you to talk too much about this. Um, just be you know so that I can let you get to your readings and things. But I will mention for listeners that um, to uh, and I'll remind listeners that one of the one of the main arguments of the book is that Raleigh's work is actually advancing practices that transform not just history and historical practice, but also transform um, you know quite broadly European politics religion and scholarship. And one of the things to bring us back to your history of science roots um, that the conclusion does is to look specifically at how practices of historical analysis actually become central to the scientific revolution um, and to the history of science more broadly. So I'll just uh, point that out for listeners um, who may not otherwise know that it's in the book um, to sort of look specifically for the ways that this study is actually informing history of science too and certainly and directly in the conclusion. So, Nick, um, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me. There is obviously a ton of material in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. I'm looking at five very heavily highlighted single space pages of typed notes in front of me, like three-quarters of which we didn't even um, have a chance to get to. So it's a very rich book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have time to mention, but that you'd like to mention, um, especially for listeners, perhaps who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Yeah, I'd actually like to sort of emphasize a little bit uh, about the conclusion that you just, that, you know, part of the conclusion that you just made. Um for me, there's, uh, this, insofar as I'm engaging in a conversation with other historians of history, um, my, my feeling is that the emphasis that I've laid on practice is pretty, um, unusual. It um, doesn't really have a whole lot of other parallels. Maybe this isn't true outside of the, of sort of the study of early modern historians, but within early modern history, this is, this is a kind of unusual approach. Um, and this emphasis on practice, I think, has illuminated something um, quite valuable for not just historians of science, but intellectual historians and, and really cultural historians as a whole, um, which is that I mean, there's long been this recognition that the study of the past had something to do with the transformation of natural philosophy and what we used to call the scientific revolution, um, but it was never quite clear what it was. In large part because historians were uh, historians of history were particularly focused on uh, either the modern historical method, which bears a kind of oblique relationship to the modern scientific method, or historical consciousness, um, in which the narrative of the scientific revolution was again kind of obliquely there uh in this notion um this sort of older notion that you know uh, copernicanism unseats or transforms how humanity conceptualizes its place within uh the universe um what i think that i've tried to show here is that there are these real um profound subterranean shifts in how early modern scholars make knowledge right and this is about knowledge making and the, pr- the processes by which um beliefs are constructed, evidence is identified or, or uh, described as evidence, um, and these narratives of, of causation are given. Um, but I, I've, I've kind of located it in this the preeminent discipline of the late 16th century, um, that is, history. Um, and, I, and I've now shown that these practices emerge from a variety of different contingent, contingent positions uh, or contingent of effects, and really... Crystallize in the state of the past in the late sixteenth century. Then my argument is that this starts to move all around, right, um, and, and into various disciplines, and to um, and some t- in some cases generate or stimulate new kinds of practice, or in other kinds of uh, environments, reconfigure or rebalance how certain practices are assessed or valued. Um, and for me, you know, this is this kind of practice that that breaks down sources into evidence and then re, uh, relies on the modern commentator to try and recombine them into different, uh, explanatory, um, frameworks is what underlies, uh, a great number of the massive shifts of the late 16th and 17th century. So I actually think that, you know, that it's not just, that's a, sort of a shift in how historical knowledge is made, but I think that this gets adopted by natural philosophers and individuals in all kinds of other spheres of more naturally oriented learning and reshapes the way that they assess uh, the production of knowledge. Um, and I think, again, it's adopted by um, individuals within the political sphere as well and in the military sphere um, and re- ends up reshaping the ways that they approach the um, problems of making knowledge to deal with the very uh, serious catastrophes and crises that they try to deal with all the time. Um, in essence, this is an argument for. So, uh, knowledge-making practice as the engine of change within early modern Europe.
1: Great. Thank you, Nick. So now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? What project or projects are currently inspiring you?
0: Um, well, you know, I, uh, um, I have a couple um, that I am trying to figure out what I'm actually going to do. Um, you know, I just made this relatively large claim about the significance of early modern Europe and all changes. Uh, and one of the things about the book is that one of the reasons I actually got it out is that Raleigh was constraining me. Right, I couldn't actually talk about these kind of big events or big processes while holding Raleigh as a plumb line all the time. Um, So, there is one part of me that is itching to take that on um, and to really make this kind of claim that um, we have to. That that, that now that the narrative of the scientific revolution is kind of dead, right, or is at least problematized to the point where it's not quite clear what historians of science do. I have this this um, inclination to. Try and reorient the question by thinking of the history of science is not the history of the ancestors. I mean, we aren't the, the, the history of early modern science not as the history of the ancestors of the modern sciences, or the history of the origin of the modern sciences, but the history of how knowledge making practices in early uh, or the history of knowledge making practices in early modern Europe. Um, and so, I have this idea that I might write this um, probably would have to be either a very short or very long book about. Um, transformations in knowledge-making practice um, across many, many disciplines or fields of knowledge within early modern Europe, um, not just focusing on, say, astronomy or natural philosophy um, or history, for that matter, but uh, crossing those disciplines and politics and religion and so on and making this argument that, that in essence, uh, these shifts in practice are the engines for the historical revolution, the scientific revolution, uh, you know, the rise of the new monarchies, the, uh, the military revolution, all these kinds of things that actually modern historians with their uh, fears of big narratives no longer really want to talk about, but work over their work nonetheless. Um, and within that is a um, uh, kind of a discussion of political practice that I think is really interesting and that may end up um, being its own project. Um, you know, historians of, of politics, I mean, there's no such thing really as a historian of politics. There's a political historian who talks about flows and ebbs of power, right? There's historians of political thought who think about ideas, um, but there aren't really historians of political practice in the way that I'm conceptualizing it, uh, and so there, I have this idea that maybe trying to approach, uh, probably in this case, early modern British history through this notion of uh, politics as a knowledge-making practice might be a, a way to intervene in a field that has lots and lots of people involved in it, but very few of whom talk. Uh, or, or write in a way that is informed by the kinds of approaches that I have to offer so so that's one of those two will probably be uh, be it or I might just end up writing the histories about more crazy histories that are written in the 16th century because that's actually what I really love
1: well great best of luck with that uh, that set of really interesting projects Thanks, Nick and thank you so much for talking with me today it's really been a pleasure
0: great thank you very much for having me I really enjoyed this
1: you've been listening to new books in history. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you again next time.